Hello, and welcome to a reading of The Devil in the Belfry by Edgar Allan Poe. Narration by Calvin Lowe. The Devil in the Belfry. Everybody knows, in a general way, that the finest place in the world is, or alas was, the Dutch borough of Vander Votiemetis. Yet, as it lies some distance from any of the main roads, being in a somewhat out-of-the-way situation, there are perhaps very few of my readers who have ever paid it a visit. For the benefit of those who have not, therefore, it will be only proper that I should enter into some other account of it. And this is indeed the most necessary as with the hope of enlisting public sympathy on behalf of the inhabitants. I decide here to give a history of the calamitous events which have so lately occurred within its limits. No one who knows me will doubt that the duty thus self-imposed will be executed to the best of my ability and, with all that rigid impartiality, all that cautious examination into facts and diligent collation of authorities which should ever distinguish him who aspires to the title of historian. By the united aid of medals, manuscripts, and inscriptions, I am able to say positively that the borough of Vandervotiamidis has existed from its origin in precisely the same condition which it at present preserves. Of the date of this origin, however, I grieve that I can only speak with that species of indefinite definiteness which mathematicians are at times forced to put up with in certain algebraic formulae. The date, I may thus say, in regard to the remoteness of its antiquity, cannot be less than any assignable quantity whatsoever. Touching the derivation of the name Vonder Votiamidis, I confess myself with sorrow equally at the fault. Among a multitude of opinions upon this delicate point, some acute, some learned, some sufficiently the reverse. I am able to select nothing which ought to be considered satisfactory. Perhaps the idea of Grodswig, nearly coincident with the Kraut Aplenty, is to be cautiously preferred. It runs, Vonder Votiamitis, Vonder, Lege Donder, Votiamitis, Quasi und Blitzis, Blitzis Absol pro Blitzen. This derivative, to say the truth, is still countenanced by some traces of the electric fluid event evident on the summit of the steeple of the house of the town council. I do not choose, however, to commit myself on a theme of such importance and must refer the reader to serious of information to the Otacantulae de Rubis Pretervetius of Dudrigatz. See also Blunderbuzzard de derivation bus gothic edit red and black character catchword and no cipher wherein consult also marginal notes in the autograph of stuff and puff and with the sub commentaries of grunt und guzzle notwithstanding the obscurity which thus envelops the date of the foundation of vanter votiamitis and the derivation of its name there can be no doubt as i said before that it has always existed as we find it at this epoch. The oldest man in the borough can remember not the slightest difference in the appearance of any portion of it, and indeed the very suggestion of such a possibility is considered an insult. 
The side of the village was in a perfectly circular valley, about a quarter of a mile in circumference, and entirely surrounded by gentle hills, over whose summit the people have never yet ventured to pass. For this they assign the very good reason that they do not believe there is anything at all on the other side. Round the skirts of the valley, which is quite level and paved throughout with flat tiles, extends a continuous row of sixty little houses. These, having their backs on the hills, must look, of course, to the center of the plain, which is just sixty yards from the front door of each dwelling. Every person has a small garden before it with a circular path, a sundial, and twenty-four cabbages. The buildings themselves are so precisely alike that one can in no manner be distinguished from the other. Owing to the vast antiquity of the style of architecture is somewhat odd, but it is not for that reason the less likely strikingly picturesque. They are fashioned of hard-burned little bricks red with black ends so that the walls look like a chessboard upon a great scale. The gables are turned to the front and there are cornices as big as all the rest of the house over the eaves and over the main doors. The windows are narrow and deep with very tiny panes and a great deal of sash. On the roof is a vast quantity of tiles with long curly ears. The woodwork throughout is of dark hue and there is much carving about it, but with a trifling variety of pattern for time out of mind the carvers of Vander Vatiamitis have never been able to carve more than two objects, a timepiece and a cabbage. But these they do exceedingly well, and intersperse them with singular ingenuity wherever they find room for the chisel. The dwellings are as much alike inside and as out, and the furniture is all upon one plan. The floors are of square tiles, the chairs and tables are black-looking wood with thin crooked legs and puppy feet. The mantelpieces are wide and high and have not only timepieces and cabbages sculptured over the front, but a real timepiece, which makes a prodigious ticking on the top of the middle, with a flower pot containing a cabbage standing on each extremity by way of an outrider. Between each cabbage and the timepiece again is a little Chinaman having a large stomach with a great round hole in it through which is seen the dial plate of a watch. The fireplaces are large and deep, with fierce, crooked-looking fire dogs. There is constantly a rousing fire and a huge pot over it, full of sauerkraut and pork, to which the good woman of the house is always busy in attending. She is a fat little old lady with blue eyes and a red face, wears a huge cap like a sugar loaf, ornamented with purple and yellow ribbons. Her dress is of orange-colored linsey woolsey made very full behind and very short in the waist, and indeed very short in other respects, not reaching below the middle of her leg. This is somewhat thick, and so are her ankles, but she has a fine pair of green stockings to cover them. Her shoes of pink leather are fastened each with a bunch of yellow ribbons puckered up in the shape of a cabbage. In her left hand she has a little, heavy Dutch watch. In her right she wields a ladle for the sauerkraut and pork. By her side there stands a fat tabby cat, with a gilt toy repeater tied to its tail, which the boys have there fastened by the way of a quiz. The boys themselves are, all three of them, in the garden attending the pig. They are each two feet in height, they have three cornered cocked hats, purple waistcoats reaching down to their thighs, buckskin knee breeches, red stockings, heavy shoes with big silver buckles, 
long surtout coats with large buttons of mother of pearl. Each, too, has a pipe in his mouth and a little dumpy watch in his right hand. He takes a puff and a look, and then a look and a puff. The pig, which is corpulent and lazy, is occupied now in picking up the stray leaves that fall from the cabbages, and now in giving a kick behind at the gilt repeater, with the urchins have also tied to his tail in order to make him look as handsome as the cat. Right at the front door, in a high-backed leather-bottomed armchair with crooked legs and puppy feet-like tables, is seated the old man of the house himself. He is an exceedingly puffy little old gentleman with big circular eyes and a huge double chin. His dress resembles that of the boys, and I need say nothing further about it. All the difference is that his pipe is somewhat bigger than theirs and he can make a greater smoke. Like them, he has a watch, but he carries his watch in his pocket. To tell the truth, he has something of more importance than a watch to attend to, and what that is I shall presently explain. He sits with his right leg upon his left knee, wears a grave countenance and always keeps one of his eyes at least resolutely bent upon a certain remarkable object in the center of the plain. This object is situated in the steeple of the house of the town council. The town council are all very little, round, oily, intelligent men with big saucer eyes and fat double chins and have their coats much longer and their shoe buckles much bigger than the ordinary inhabitants of Vondervotimus. Since my sojourn in the borough, they have had several special meetings and have adopted these three important regulations. That it is wrong to alter the good old course of things. That there is nothing tolerable out of Vondervotimus. And that we will stick by our clocks and our cabbages. Above the session room of the council is the steeple, and in the steeple is the belfry, where exists, and has existed time out of mind, the pride and wonder of the village, the great clock of the borough of Vondervotiamitis. And this is the object to which the eyes of the old gentlemen are turned who sit in the leather-bottomed armchairs. The great clock has seven faces, one in each of the seven sides of the steeple, so that it can be readily seen from all quarters. Its faces are large and white, and its hands heavy and black. There is a belfry man whose sole duty is to attend to it, but this duty is the most perfect of sinecures. For the clock of Vondervotiamitis was never yet known to have anything to do with it. Until lately, the bare supposition of such a thing was considered heretical. From the remotest period of antiquity to which the archives have referenced, the hours have been regularly struck by the big bell, and indeed, the case was just the same with all the other clocks and watches in the borough. Never was such a place for keeping the true time when the larger clapper thought it proper to say twelve o'clock. All its obedient followers opened their throats simultaneously and responded like a very echo. In short, the good burghers were fond of their sauerkraut, and then they were proud of their clocks. All people who hold sinecure offices are held in more or less respect, and as the belfry, man of the Vondervotiamitis, has the most perfect of sinecures, he is the most perfectly respected of any man in the world. He is the chief dignitary of the borough, 
and the very pigs look upon to him with a sentiment of reverence. His coattail is very far longer, his pipe, his shoe buckles, his eyes, and his stomach very far bigger than those of any other gentleman in the village, and as to his chin, it is not only double, but triple. I have this painted the happiest state of Vander Votiamitis, alas that so fair a picture should ever experience a reverse. There has been a saying among the wisest inhabitants that no good can come from over the hills, and it really seemed that the worlds had in them something of the spirit of prophecy. It was five minutes past noon on the day before yesterday when there appeared a very odd-looking object on the summit of the ridge of the east. Such an occurrence, of course, attracted universal attention, and every little old gentleman who sat in a leather-bottomed armchair turned one of his eyes with a stare of dismay upon the phenomenon, still keeping the other upon the clock in the steeple. By the time that it was only three minutes to noon, the droll object in question was perceived to be a very diminutive, foreign-looking young man. He descended the hills at a great rate so that everybody had a good look at him. He was really the most finicky little personage that had ever been seen in Vondor Votiamitis. His countenance was of a dark snuff color, and he had long, hooked nose, pea eyes, a wide mouth, and an excellent set of teeth, which later he seemed anxious of displaying as he was grinning from ear to ear. What the mustachios and whiskers, there was none of the rest of his face to be seen. His head was uncovered, and his hair neatly done up in papalotes. His dress was a tight-fitting, swallow-tailed black coat from one of those pockets dangled a vast length of white handkerchief, black kerzimir neat breeches, black stockings, and stumpy-looking pumps, with huge bunches of black satin ribbon for bows. Under one arm he carried a huge chope de bras, and under the other a fiddle nearly five times as big as himself. In his left hand was a gold snuff box from which he capered down the hill, cutting all manner of fantastic steps. He took snuff incessantly with an air of a great possibility of satisfaction. God bless me, here was a sight for the honest burghers of Vonder Vodiumidus. To speak plainly, the fellow had, in spite of his grinning, an audacious and sinister kind of face, and as he curveted right into the village, the old stumpy appearance of his pumps excited no little suspicion and many a burgher who beheld him that day would have given a trifle for a peep beneath the white cambric handkerchief which hung so obtrusively from the pocket of his swallow-tailed coat. But that mainly occasioned a righteous indignation was that the scoundrelly popinjay, while he cut a fandango here and a whirligig here, did not seem to have the remotest idea in the world of such a thing as keeping time in his steps. The good people of the borough had scarcely a chance, however, to get their eyes thoroughly open, when, just as it wanted half a minute of noon, the rascal bounced, as I say, right into the midst of them. He gave a chasse here and a balancé there, and then, after a pirouette and a poste de feu, Pigeon winged himself right up into the belfry of the house of the town council where the wonder-stricken belfry man sat smoking in a state of dignity and dismay. But the little chap seized him at once by the nose, gave it a swing and a pull, clapped the big chauvet de bras upon his head, 
knocked it down over his eyes and mouth, and then, lifting up the big fiddle, beat him with it so long and so soundly that, what with the belfry man being so fat and the fiddle being so hollow, you would have sworn that there was a regiment of double bass drummers all beating the devil's tattoo up in the belfry of the steeple of Vondervotimitis. There is no knowing of what desperate act of vengeance this unprincipled attack might have aroused the inhabitants, but for the important fact that it now wanted only half a second of noon. The bell was about to strike, and it was a matter of absolute and preeminent necessity that everybody should look well at his watch. It was evident, however, that just at this moment, the fellow in the steeple was doing something that he had no business to do with the clock. But as it now began to strike, nobody had any time to attend to his maneuvers, for they had all to count the strokes of the bell as it sounded. One, said the clock. Vaughn echoed every old gentleman in every leather-bottomed armchair in Von der Vodiumidus. Vaughn, said his watch also. Vaughn, said the watch of his brow, and Vaughn, said the watches of the boys and the little gilt repeaters on the tails of the cat and pig. Two, continued the big bell, and two, repeated all the repeaters. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, said the bell. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, answered the others. Eleven, said the big one. Eleven, assented the little ones. Twelve, said the bell. Twelve, they replied, perfectly satisfied and dropping their voices. Undulf it is, said the old little gentleman, putting up their watches. But the big bell had not finished with them yet. Thirteen, he said. De Tuffel, gasped the little old gentleman, turning pale, dropping their pipes, and putting down all their right legs from over their left knees. De Tuffel, groaned them. Thirteen, thirteen. My God, it is thirteen o'clock. Why attempt to describe the terrible scene which ensued? All Vondervodiumidis flew at once into a lamentable state of uproar. What is come to mine Pelly? roared all the boys. I've been angry for an hour. What is come to mine Kraut? screamed all the vrows. It has been done to rags for this hour. What is come to mine pipe? swore all the little old gentlemen, Donder and Blitzen. It has been smoked out this hour. And they filled them up again in a great rage, and sinking back into their armchairs, puffed away so fast and so fiercely that the whole valley was immediately filled with impenetrable smoke. Meantime, the cabbages all turned very red in the face, and it seemed as if Old Nick himself had taken possession of everything in the shape of a timepiece. The clocks carved upon the furniture took to dancing as if bewitched, while those upon the mantelpieces could scarcely contain themselves with fury and kept such a continual striking of thirteen and such a frisking and wriggling of their pendulums as was really horrible to see. But, worse than all, neither the cats nor the pigs could put up any longer with the behavior of the little repeaters tied to their tails and resented it by scampering all over the place, scratching and poking and squeaking and screeching and caterwauling and squalling and flying into the faces and running over the petticoats of the people and creating altogether the most abominable din and confusion which it possible for a reasonable person to conceive. 
And to make matters still more distressing, the rascally little scrapegrace in the steeple was evidently exerting himself to the utmost every now and then one might catch a glimpse of the scoundrel through the smoke. There he sat in the belfry, upon the belfry man, who was lying flat upon his back. In his teeth the villain held the bell rope, which he kept jerking about with his head, raising such a clatter that my ears rang again, even to think of it. On his lap lay the big fiddle at which he was scraping. Out of all time and tune, with both hands making a great show, the nincompoop, of playing Judy O'Flanagan and Patio Rafferty. Affairs being thus miserably situated, I left the place in disgust and now appeal to aid for all lovers of correct time and fine kraut. Let us proceed in a body to the borough and restore the ancient order of things in Vonder Vodiumitis by ejecting that little fellow from the steeple. This has been a reading of The Devil in the Belfry by Edgar Allan Poe. Narration by Calvin Lowe. Thank you so much for listening.